Well, hello, Line Podcast listeners. Mac Ernie here for Jen Gerson. Great to be back with you. We had a somewhat longer than expected break from our podcast. We did record an episode last week after our planned two-week vacation. Unfortunately, I'm having home renovations done, and I'm not in my normal home studio, or I wasn't last week. And Jen was at an Airbnb while visiting family out of town. It worked for video purposes, but the audio just wasn't good enough to use for a podcast. We're a little bit more back to normal this week. Not entirely back to normal, but we're getting there. At least enough to put together a podcast for you. So here is the latest episode of the Lions Experimental Podcast, and we do hope you enjoy it. Well, Jennifer Gerson, as I live and breathe, look at you back at your house in Calgary. Yes, I was so happy when I got off the plane from Toronto, I came into the the, the beautiful sort of under 30 degree air of Calgary, which like has a very, very low humid, humidex. And I breathed in clearly in and out, enjoyed the sunshine and was happy to be back home. I was telling you this just yesterday, um, you know, just and for for transparency here, we are recording this earlier than we normally do just because some scheduling stuff you and I both have. So we're recording this on Thursday afternoon and we'll publish it on Friday. Um, so I'd been mentioning to you last night that I, I'm very stubborn. Like, I think I'm a typical dude. I hate taking medication of any kind. It's just like, yeah. I'm going to tough it out. I'd been having allergies for like a month and I Mm -hmm. finally yesterday took a Claritin and I was like oh my god my head is empty and my lungs are working and I'm not wheezing anymore it Toronto's summer has been weird over Toronto summers are never pleasant like you you guys actually have you well and not only that but like you guys always always have really lovely springs like I love a Toronto spring and I love a Toronto fall like you've got those the shoulder seasons are baller in Toronto but your winters aren't better than ours frankly and your summers are a lot worse i think your winters are longer uh no i say our winters aren't aren't longer but our springs aren't as nice our springs are cooler and uh it takes a really long time for the plants to get going i find i find sort of april march in 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 calgary really hard because the weather is actually decent like it's it's like 10 15 degrees like it feels like it should be spring and that you look outside and it's nothing but brown right like the trees the trees and the plants don't really come into to play until june what is the earliest in the year you would be surprised to have snow the earliest in the year i'd be surprised to have snow august like i've never seen that happen so i've seen i've seen i've seen like a like a shock sort of uh september snowfall but even those snowfalls are like oh we get this freak dump of snow and it's melted the next day in september that so that would be when would you expect snow i would usually expect it to be reasonably cold by the end of october but again the the difference between calgary and 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 toronto is that our our those those transitional seasons are really um volatile Mm. so we will get like a cold snap and then all of a sudden it will be 10 12 degrees again and then it will be like cold for three days and then all of a sudden it's going to be like late fall weather and then we could get some freak like 15 degree day in the middle of december like i mean i remember like riding my bike in december in in calgary that stuff happens here it's just wild all right i will grant that our summers are becoming increasingly unpleasant and just like i'm still i'm still riding the wave of that claritin which feels great like uh I haven't been breathing as well in a month, and I don't even know what it is I'm allergic to now. Apparently, it's a bad year for pollen in Toronto. But boy, I would know. Being 
expecting snow by October. No, thanks. This was the first, you know, what? I, I don't know if it was this year, like this past winter or the one before. And I also don't know how much of this is COVID like isolation related because of, <laughs> of various lockdowns we were rolling with, but oh, bless you. Um, I would, I would add that for the first time, not this winter, but the winter before I understood snowbirds. And I like winter. Like I like hockey. I, I like winter sports stuff. My my son plays in a couple hockey leagues. So winters are actually really fun and active times for us. But the last couple of years for the first time ever, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I could be in Florida right now. I could do Phoenix right now. I could do Texas right now. I don't need to be here in this. Well, and it's it, it's interesting. So I mean, also we're active because we have the mountains, and we've got skiing, right? So it's great. A lot of people really love winter in, in, in this province. But I will say, like, you we did get those that weird two to three week span in sort of december january it was proper minus 40 and like our doors were frozen over like we we get those the thing that people don't get about calgary and why that's bearable is that like then the next week it's plus 10 like it's just it, it it's it when it gets cold it gets really cold and it looks really brutal but what people don't understand about living here is that it, the, the weather's constantly volatile well i as long as I have Clarendon, I guess I can get through the. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Anyway, look, look, we we will be fighting about which city is better for a long time to come. I just think that that you know, with climate change, Cal- Calgary is going to win in the long run. I am. I I am wondering. It's always it's hard to separate climate out from just normal weather variations, but I don't normally have allergies in the summer. Well, actually, so we were talking about this, and this was very interesting because we had some really weird pollen um, patterns here in Calgary as well, and it turns out that pollen over pollination is a consequence of drought um, for certain types of trees that uh, when trees are stressed by drought the next year they overproduce male male cones um, because um, in nature of course you know males are cheaper to produce than females for obvious reasons Um, so they'll overproduce male cones which is why all of the trees were 30 to 40 percent more actually it was way more than that it was like it was crazy like like the trees would get hit by the wind and you get these puffs of yellow pollen coming out of the 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 pine cones um which was does not happen like it was pretty wild but um it is a result of climactic sort of volatility that you do have weird stress responses from plants lots to talk about about on that front you know what not a lot to talk about right now in in the news you and i had teased last week that we would have the uh, the papal visit coming up can i just say and i want to stress again something i told you last week i'm not catholic and i'm not indigenous and i don't have any particular emotional investment in this i'm viewing this as just as a news guy mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to sound like i'm taking the pope's side like i don't want to like because I, I don't this might sound like a criticism of indigenous canadians i don't mean it that way but isn't it kind of unfolding exactly the way you thought it would where he comes he apologizes his apology doesn't satisfy everybody so it's being portrayed as a failed as a failed trip and like and you know and i'm not saying that the pope shouldn't have come to apologize anyway because you know the virtue is this is this is is pretty much what we said was going to happen last week like so now that the the demand is that uh the 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 pope repeal the discovery doctrine which don't get me wrong sure repeal the discovery doctrine but i mean if he had done that then the criticism would be like well it's all just words and blah 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 blah. like all this guy has to offer is words that's literally it that that's that's you can always criticism for criticize the Pope for saying, well, those are just empty words because words are all empty words are all he's got. Like, that's it. That's all he brings to the table, right? 
so i mean this is this is gonna be the problem is that there's there's it's never going to be enough we all know that that doesn't mean he shouldn't have come to have apologized it doesn't mean that he shouldn't repeal the discovery doctrine sure go for it repeal the like, discovery doctrine is the thing right where like unclaimed lands yeah. should be converted to christianity something like that yes and it basically becomes the pretext for colonization but i mean like the discovery doctrine i don't think has actually been used in centuries like it's not well, it's we not explored an, the land yeah, I mean, it's it's not an active doctrine that is being used in legal law today. And if he repealed it, it wouldn't make any legal difference to the standing of Canada. So, like, it's, again, it's all empty words. That, that's all that he has to offer here. So it's never going to be enough. Um, of course, you don't you don't come to a place and apologize because, you, you know, you're, you're because of the outcome. You, you apologize because it's something you feel that you need to do for your own, yeah. you know immortal soul but in his case but so fine like it's good for him to do it but i mean like it doesn't surprise me that indigenous groups are unsatisfied there's nothing this guy can offer him offer you that will ever satisfy you yeah because there is nothing he can offer you well i mean the one thing is there there are some outstanding um financial payments there are outstanding documents that have been requested so that that can be done um what what occurs to me looking at all of this, and again, like I, I can't, I, I can't and won't speak for Indigenous people, and I can't and won't speak for Catholics, but in very broad terms, it just it occurs to me that what we're talking about here is actually a very human thing, which is that when someone apologizes to you for a great wrong, there are basically three broad things that can happen: someone, an individual, or a community, I guess can accept the apology and have it be a meaningful thing that allows them to move on or they can reject it and hold on to their anger. And sometimes it's justified anger, right? Or people can kind of go, yeah, you know, I accept that, but I find it wasn't as transformative and healing as I thought it might be here. And we just seem to be seeing that playing out on a grand scale right now. And I'm not saying this with any cynicism. Uh, This is exactly what I think we expected to have happen, right? Because, yep. yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss here. Like, obviously, I think the church should make any payments it owes. I think the church should 100%. release documents. Yep. I have no objection to perpetrators being brought to to justice if, if they can be identified and if there's the evidence in place. I, I just hope the apology gave everyone it was capable of reaching re- a real measure of peace. Yeah. And I just, I, I just, um, again, this goes back to expectations being a problem. Like what, what was, what was in the realm of probability that, that of, of expectations that the Pope could have reasonably offered that would make this better. I, I, and I mean, I mean, it's in a real practical way. Um, even if he had done all of the things that indigenous groups have rightly called for all the things you mentioned i I mean i don't oppose any of that and you want to repeal the discovery doctrine go for it but even if he had done all that there would always be something else well the pope owes us more money well the catholic church should shut itself down in shame well the blah 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 like there's he can't fix it the past is past he can't fix the past it's just what it is he can offer remorse he can offer compensation he can offer that but it's it's never going to make the past better it just can't and that's that's where I think a question of expectations about what you were expecting the Pope's apology to do sort of becomes a, a crucial point. 
Yeah, and I, I think again, I I, can't, I cannot speak for in, Indigenous people, but it, it, again, just on very human terms, it, the world is full of examples of people getting the apology they sought and then realizing it didn't make it didn't the pain work. Go away. It didn't make the pain go away yeah. exactly. And which isn't it doesn't mean you shouldn't apologize. Of course it doesn't. No. But no, I, I, the, the church has a lot to apologize for, and I think it is appropriate that the Pope came and apologized on uh, yeah. the Canadian soil, on, on the indigenous lands. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, it's just, an, and again, I don't want any indigenous listener to feel picked on here because it's not. It's a human thing. I mean, it is one of the most natural things in the world to get that thing that you have been seeking after great pain and finding that it brings you no peace. Yep, and that's right. I think for for indigenous uh, people who are still struggling with this, either because they're personally survivors or they're descendants of survivors, or even just the broader effects of colonialism on their communities, I all I, again I, I'm repeating myself, but I hope they get value from this visit. I hope it allows them to to move on in some ways. One of the most honest comments I've seen from from an indigenous Canadian I, I follow online was simply that, you know. <laughs> she said we're still processing this like this is a lot for us to, yeah. to take in and like there's all these instant reactions in the press about it oh like it, it was enough or no it wasn't enough and she just said guys give us give us some time like we we yeah, need to sit enough. with this for a while and that's yeah. and again that to me struck me as very very human so i get we didn't write anything about this last week so i guess this week we can maybe write up some version of that i just dropped my pen and it landed right on my toes so that was fun um here it is um for oh the other thing i want to talk you know what why don't you why don't you take over a bit tell me about alberta the the ucp leadership so you teed off on this last week so like, but it turns out you've I got some more to say oh my gosh so like i don't i don't want to focus too much on alberta's politics because bluntly like we try to be a national publication and so we too tend to focus on Alberta and Ontario politics. I think there's two reasons for that. One is that we're in Alberta and Ontario respectively. And two is like, I think that short of maybe a Quebec, these are the provincial politics that are most interesting and most relevant to the na- to the nation as a whole. Yep. Right? Agreed. Now, we and and I, I think if we had um, more uh, active sort of editorial insight from Quebec, that would pro- probably be something we talk about a lot more. But like, Bluntly, you know, what's going on in BC pretty rarely makes national news. What's going on in Saskatchewan and Manitoba very rarely make national news. There's a reason for that. It's it's just because they're not they're not as crazy. They're not as crazy. The politics there are just not quite as nutty. Um, but politics in Alberta is nutty. It's it's just it's a I call it Alberta the show. Like it's it's a soap opera. It's a never-ending soap opera. Um, and it's glorious for that reason. I, I very much enjoy covering politics in Alberta for exactly that reason, because it's stupid. Um, but anyway, so there was the UCP leadership race that happened uh, last night, so Wednesday. And it's just one thing that I just took away from all of this is just the degree to which Alberta pol- Alberta conservatives are bad at politics. Right now, the likely winner is going to be Danielle Smith. She is dominating this race, and she's dominating this race with a joke policy called the Sovereignty Act, but that because it's so crazy, it's so lunatic, it's so divorced from how any of Confederation works, uh, essentially the Sovereignty Act has dominated this race and it's allowed Daniel Smith to completely control the narrative of this race. And the fact that none of the other leadership candidates seems to understand that or seems to be able to switch gears or switch the channel on, on this just demonstrates to me how 
fucking amateur hour this entire thing is. I, I described it online as like, it's like someone, it's like a leadership candidate decides to campaign wearing assless chaps. And then I was corrected. Apparently all chaps are assless. But anyway, decides to campaign wearing assless chaps. And everybody's looking at this leadership candidate going like, why is this person's ass hanging out? This person's like a crazy person. This person's disqualifying. Meanwhile, all you're talking about is the person in assless chaps. Four months later, assless chaps candidate wins. You know, like, like that's what's happening here. And and none of these Leah's other candidates seems to understand that they're they're caught in this on this narrative trap, and none of them seems to be able to switch gears. So then you got sort of like the establishment candidate, Travis Taves, who's trying to switch gears. Last night he introduces that he's going to uh, impose tariffs on provinces that are like mean to Alberta. This is like twelve year old tariffs on you. You you were mean to us. I'm gonna put tariffs on Quebec cheese. I'll show you like. The following Firstly, provinces are not invited to Alberta's birthday. Yeah, you're not invited to my birthday party. Like, it, not only is it stupid and juvenile and undermines the whole sort of economic, under like, logic underpinning confederation, but that would only punish Alberta consumers, just so that we're clear. That would punish yeah. only conserv Alberta conservatives, consumers in the best case scenario. And in the worst case scenario, it would lead to, like, a tit-for-tat tariff war within confederation. Like... It, it's stupid these ideas are stupid and like the fact that daniel smith is going to win with the stupidest idea of them all is like demonstrates the degree to which this entire party is a clown show right now so anyway that i want to say um and then i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about farmers you know we we put a pin on farmers for me because i want to ask you a question so, i do i do want to talk about farmers but i, yes. I want to ask you a question first <clears throat> Are you overestimating the extent to which all of this assless chappery? And I, yes, I know all all chaps are assless. I knew that already. Yes, but, but are assless you, chaps sounds better. It does. Yeah, no, I agree. So we're just going to go with it. Are you overestimating the extent to which this is an Alberta thing, and underestimating the extent to which this is actually a conservative thing right now? Yeah. Um, like, would if it was like just change a few things and come up in some alternate timeline where it's the Alberta NDP that is doing this right now. Are they as assless chappy or are they more organized? Because one of they're my... not as assless chappy. And I mean, I say that like with full acknowledgement that the NDP is, is it's got its own crazy wing, like all parties do. Um, so I don't give them a, a total pass for that, but I don't see Rachel Notley dominating a race by like we're gonna shut down the oil sands or something equally nutty as that like you know what i mean like it's just it's just you're right it is a conservative thing i think it's you see it in pierre polyev's campaign you see it in um american campaign the the, the name of the game is get attention i think I, you know it's funny i think there there's a lot of ways people describe this right we talk about like particularly in the american context we hear a lot about like white nationalism or race-based grievances and you know the uh, demographic anxiety or economic anxiety in canada we talk about like conspiracies and we, we talk about like disinfo and misinfo i don't want to oversimplify something that is complicated here but is maybe a part of this all just the fact that like conservative politics and a lot of the world right now are just existing in a land of make-believe yeah. And also just, I, I think that there's, there's a, I think conservatives don't really understand what they stand for anymore. So they're just, well, they're just pulling on everything. I think that's exactly it. 
Yeah, yeah, no. And a column I've been meaning to write for about a year now, I did my first interviews about this last summer, was whether or not the overall meta problem in in Canadian uh, conservatism, and I just don't mean federal, I mean kind of everywhere, is intellectual bankruptcy. Yeah. And when, when I talk about this, like conservatives get pissed with me because they think I'm calling them stupid. No, I don't mean that. It's not about how intelligent you are. It's whether or not the movement has sort of a, a pantry full of ideas, like smart ideas, things like policy innovations or cultural stuff that that actually are the animating force of a party. Because in the absence of that stuff, you start having politics exist in the realm of make-believe you start having alberta say well guess what quebec you're not you're not invited to our uh, birthday party you have a a federal conservative race where the overwhelming front runner is the crypto fired the bank of canada guy opt out of just inflation in ontario it manifested a bit differently with doug ford where basically doug ford who just won a smashing majority win nothing conservative about this guy and the funny thing is about people in ontario like they're so wedded to the idea of doug ford as being this like horseman of the far right apocalypse he's literally rebranded himself as the yes guy like mm-hmm. literally like he's a hey, we're, we're the yes guy i'm gonna say yes what the, what fucking conservatives identifies themselves as the yes guy the historical role of conservatism is being the no guys the and, grumpy, and some of the time you're men. Like mm, no yeah like yes you were the grumpy curmudgeon saying no to stuff and a lot of the time no is the right answer so like there's no shame in being the no guys but but nobody likes the no guys man nobody likes the no guys and doug ford wants to be liked so you know quebec i mean i'm i'm looking a little bit like uh, it was it was andrew coin who um had a good tweet um thursday i think where he basically just screen capped a bunch of headlines about like modern conservatism and they're all insane it's all about modern canadian conservatism and it's like in quebec conservative party surging and talking about conspiracies like pierre polyev doesn't want to debate uh alberta it's like anti-vax stuff and sovereignty acts i mean and then in ontario it's the yes man going i'll say yes to everything i mean the other the other thing here as well is that i think we underestimate the degree to which the electorate just really likes being told what it wants to hear yeah right like there's a there's a deep degree of despondency and despair in 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 alberta the alberta electorate and a sense that of aggrievement and a sense that like well shit we have to do something so why not this this is something you know like the, it's it's almost nihilistic it's it's and, chi- and it's very juvenile it's not but it, it's straight up like if only we had the willpower to actually stand up to the federal government we could get what we want like your problem isn't lack of willpower. I don't know what to tell you. Like that's not the problem, right? And it's like, but but here they have another you know, leader who's coming forward and telling them what they want to hear. If only Kenny were strong against the uh, federal government like me, we wouldn't be paying equalization. We could get the C sixty nine overfield by running a local sort of Alberta sovereignty act. I mean, that was actually an example she used. Like as if you could run an Alberta Sovereignty Act that would control how pipelines were accepted in other provinces. Like it's just, it literally is anything. And people, people when they when you when you point this stuff out, they think through it. They're just like, yeah, well, well, but at least we're doing something. I mean, I think the actual quote from Daniel Smith was, well, at least we're putting the federal government on notice. Like, because that plays locally great. People love the idea of putting the federal government on notice. 
without realizing that that's a joke. Like they're making themselves out to look like idiots because the federal government isn't going to be on notice as a result of your fake law. Like that that's you're just making yourself look like dumb bucks. Like, but, but they like it. They like hearing, they like hearing like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna stick one to the federal government with this law that makes no sense and demonstrates that we don't understand how any of this shit works, but that'll teach them. That'll teach them. Like, Tom it's, Nichols. It's, it's that level. It's that level of juvenile logic and, and politicking. I, you know me, I don't like to just take U.S. political stuff and just superimpose it on Canada. It, it it misses more than it captures. I think when you try that, but Tom Nichols in the U.S. has written a lot about this, kind of the real juvenilization of the electorate. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, you're not the boss of me. It, like, as sort of an overwhelming electoral principle right now. Um Okay, well, you know, okay, so yeah, I'm absolutely right up that that Alberta thing. But I would just say, keep in mind, I don't think it's an Alberta specific thing. I think the conservatives in this could be a conservative thing more generally. Uh, That's that's totally true. But uh, I do, I think, I think that just the takeaway from all of this is just like you are all so bad at politics that you were being led by the nose by a woman wearing assless chaps. That's that's actually my takeaway. And I actually want to Google now. Are there? chaps with asses like i'm I'm actually okay. not sure I, because because bluntly if we could say assless chaps that's that's a much better phrase than just chaps you know like that doesn't chaps doesn't give you the image i'm trying to convey yeah no i hear you um okay do you want to do you want me to talk about the federal thing or do you want to do fertilizer first no you talk the federal thing so i think i, I think I, I told you this story when this happened this was in january um where what had happened was Toronto actually had one of those rare blizzards that actually ended up being a genuine yes, winter storm. I, I remember this. And we, it, we rarely get these. The Great Lakes tends to deflect a lot of this stuff away from us. And what ended up happening is that um, the, the city was paralyzed for days because we just didn't have places to dump the snow. Like there was so much of it everywhere. It took It took a long time to dig out. In my particular neighborhood, we've got a bunch of schools and we got a long-term care home uh, right around the corner. And our sidewalks are usually cleared before the roads are um, because people are walking. So a couple of days after the storm, a municipal plow came through and it uh, did the roads and it ended up knocking like a frozen snowbank of like of like big chunks of frozen snow. This was not like powdery stuff. This was days of being compacted down. And the, the road plow knocked it all onto the sidewalk a few houses up the street from me, right at an intersection where there's moms and, and dads pushing strollers and there's old people with walkers and there's a bus stop there. And I dropped my kids off at work and I was walking back and I'm like, oh, God damn it. Like the whole sidewalk's been buried by this crushed snowbank. And I, I felt bad for the people who are going to get stuck there. So I went back to my house. I got like a literal axe because the snow is frozen and I smashed it into like pieces and I brought out my shovel and I cleared the sidewalk because uh, I didn't want moms with strollers or old people with canes to get marooned on the sidewalk. Right. And as I was doing this, one of my neighbors is yelling, Matt, Matt, it's OK. I called the city. Yeah. <laughs> And I just kind of remember, th- I was like, okay, thanks, oh, you, yeah, oh, you sweet summer child. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like, what, what a difference in worldview that is. Right. Because yeah. they're like at the risk of somewhat oversimplifying something, I think you can break a lot of humanity down into two groups, people who see problems and fix them 
and people who see problems and report them so in the hope that someone else fixes them. Mm-hmm. And what I remember just laughing about as I was hacking my way through that frozen um, collapsed snowbank was how the person who called the city probably felt awesome about themselves. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I'm an engaged, active caring citizen i saw a problem i didn't do nothing i just didn't walk by i picked up the phone and i called the authorities right yeah and like i don't want to judge my my individual neighbor i don't know maybe they got bad knees maybe they got bad shoulders maybe they have high blood pressure like i don't know i'm not going to judge them but like i could fix the problem so i fixed the problem i didn't want to wait around for someone else to fix the problem so about a month ago uh, a liberal friend of mine, a, a, an active partisan liberal, got in touch with me and said, remember that story you told on your radio show? Because I talked about this on, on my radio show about the snow, the snow bank. I'm like, yeah. And she said to me, customer service task force. And I just oh, no. laughed because oh, no. a month ago, that is what the feds announced, right? Because they oh. like there were problems with airports, problems especially with passport offices. Oh, I remember offices. this now. I totally there, forgot about it. There, there were all these big backlogs, also with immigration waitlist, getting people their documents so they can either immigrate to Canada or bring in their families. So meanwhile, like we have critical labor shortages and skilled trades and medicine. The yeah. world is full of like carpenters and nurses, and the Canadian government cannot process their paperwork. So just over a month ago, I could, I'll I'll find the exact date. Trudeau announces a customer service task force because Canadians deserve counting on great government services. Isn't that such a perfect little microcosm into the, into the worldview of people who see a sidewalk covered in snow and they've got a shovel in their garage, but they, they, they strike a task force because credit where it's due the Toronto star this week, tried to do some follow-ups on this because it's been a month since the task force was announced. Here's what the star discovered that the union in charge of the passport offices has not heard from them yet. The task force <laughs> that as far it's as only the been star a month knows, it's only been a month, Matt. Only been a month. As far as the star knows, um, there has been no other announced work by the task force on customer service excellence. Um, as far as the star can tell, looking at weekly um, passport uh, issuances, like how many are going out with the exception of one week that bumped up above the normal. It's basically flat for the last month or so with the exception of one good week, about 10% above the the mean we're issuing about as many passports now as we were last month and the month before Mm -hmm. and the month before. Mm -hmm. And when the star asked for an update from the federal government about what is the status of the task force, they received like a copy paste, almost verbatim, like the star explicitly said, this is almost word for word, what they said when they announced the task force a month ago. So tell me that this is not a microcosm of something else. When confronted with problems, we strike a task force. What does the task force do? Nothing, but it exists. And because it exists, we can prove that this is a problem that this government takes seriously. I mean, it's it's you have to understand that the Canadian government is one extended laugh track of yes minister. This is this is straight out of yes minister. Sir Humphrey is going to be like, well, we wouldn't want to fix the problem here, so we'll create a task force for the for, for, to fix to look at how we might fix the problem. But by the time the task force is done, the problem will have solved itself. Like. It's yes, minister. It's all yes, minister from top to bottom. 
there's a book that came out this week. I, I've downloaded a copy, but I haven't read it yet. It looks like a real slog. It's a collection of essays. Alex is just about... giving me a look because I butchered that accent. Just destroyed it. We'll find that and do a better job then on Sir Humphrey. Come on. Come, 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 come. No, do it for the video. Oh, you're so shy. I, from what I can hear of the accent, it was No, bad. I mean, Alex has got like a talent for accent. That's amazing. I don't. Mm. Um, so there's a book out, and I've downloaded a copy of it, but I haven't read it yet. That's that's my disclosure. <laughs> you're you're going to get a task of, force to yeah, read a, the book for you exactly. and tell you what's the And then, then afterwards, we'll have a retired Supreme Court justice review the work of the task Perfect. force. Perfect. Brilliant. Um, but uh, the book is on Canadian public policy uh, achievement, like mm -hmm. successes in Canadian public policy. And it's actually a collection of essays by really smart people looking through some of the names of the authors of these essays. Um, I was struck by, I, I know a lot of these names because like they've been writing op-eds or I've interviewed them. Like these are like smart people who are really are subject matter experts. And they're, they're writing um, essays about Canadian public policy successes because they're worried that Canadians are, are cynical about their government. And uh, Aaron Weary of um, CBC had basically said, hey, this is like a wake-up call for journalists, right? Because if all we're doing is talking about doom and gloom, are we actually accelerating the crisis in, in democracy uh, that we're all worried about? And the answer is no. No. No, it's not. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, because, I don't think that's the problem I'm worried about. Because, like... <laughs> the whole thing reminds me a little bit of that old joke well other than that mrs lincoln how was the show last night like yeah i have no doubt that most of canadian public policy works most of the time because canada is a great country to live in but the problem is while we're tallying up all of our policy successes the healthcare system crashed oops and it's like like we, we have to like on the one hand it's great to say you know like this this initiative worked really well and we really rolled out this effective policy but then it's like well also we are millions of houses short of where we should be yeah the healthcare system is a catastrophe yeah. and our military can't fight right so the other thing too is what do you want to bet now when you read the book come back to me with this one but what do you want to bet like the the the, the policy successes that get trumpeted are going to be relatively small localized policy successes that most Canadians, frankly, don't care and care as much about as, say, housing and health care. Well, I flipped I flipped through it. And one of them is, for, for instance, um, Canadian public policy has been successful at driving down the rates of tobacco use. And I would say, you know what, that's that's good. Yeah. Like you don't smoke. I don't smoke. I hardly right? know anyone our age. Of course, this uh, is also a global trend as well. Well, we don't need to dwell on that, Jen. But I mean, yeah, yeah it's and, and again, you and I are not doom and gloom as a matter of like habit. This is not cheap thrills. This is not stumping for s subscribers here. I know I, I've talked about this before in columns. I've written about this. We've talked about this as well. The country basically works at all the basic stuff. I turn on my tap and clean water will come out and it's unusual for the power to be offline. The country and the roads... works at, at the municipal level most of the time. That's yeah. the distinction I would make. The further away you get from the municipal level, the more sclerosis and dysfunction you get. I would is, agree. Is, yeah. is, is not, and that's not a, a total rule, but I think it's a general rule. I, well, what I've said before is that Canadian public policy works when it is about muscle memory. If it's, yes. if yeah. it is, can we continue to be good at something we were already good at? I think yeah. the answer is yes. Sure. And I, I think that's because in most systems, we have people who 
who know how to do it. Like the frontline hands-on guys who plow roads and, and fix sure. sewers, like they know what to do. And then they get yeah. new employees and they train them. So that stuff works well. We fall flat on our faces when we try to do new things. Yep. Um, but I, I, it's just, it just occurs to me, like the two kinds of people in the world, the ones who shovel the sidewalk and the one who call someone else. And it's both of them problem. probably are equally satisfied with the day's work they put in because a huge part of this country, and I think a lot of our government, not even political, but like the sinews of government, these are process people. These are not outcomes people. So the other interesting thing that I would just point out, and this is a complete tangent to this, that it's a specific example of this, is that uh, during my awesome vacation, best vacation ever of my life, uh, I actually rented an EV. I rented a, a BMW i3 something. Um, very, very cool EV car. I've never actually really driven one or used one before, but I was curious, you know, like, are these cars ready for prime time? Loved it. It was a really great car. It was, you know, not, you know, not the sort of car if I were commuting to and from Calgary and Edmonton every day, but for a city scooter, city scoop, great car. Now this is of course, Vancouver in the summer. What would it be like Calgary in the winter? I, you know, there's some questions, but I'm, I'm totally convinced that EVs or hybrids or some, some combination of that in our, especially in our climate, I don't think we're going to totally get rid of gas, but we could probably substantively reduce our, our individual gas consumption with a hybrid type model, um, even in a, in a cold climate. I think these cars are pretty close to being ready for prime time, even in extreme environments like, like Calgary, for example. Where, where we aren't ready and where we haven't even begun to have this conversation is uh, EV charging infrastructure. Yeah. In order to get say 90%, like right now, it's it's relatively easy to go out of your way in a place like Vancouver and find a charging station. You know, it's a little inconvenient, but you know, whatever, to save myself 30 bucks on gas, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile inconvenience. What do we do when 90% of the cars or 80% of the cars or 70% of the cars are EVs? Because like the odd EV charging station in the parking lot of your library ain't going to cut it. It's going to have to be like 50% of the mall parking lot stalls are going to have to have charging stations. It's going to be every house, new house get, that gets built is going to need an EV charging station. And what about the draw and the impact on the on the power grid that that's going to have? We're not going to be able to do that on the existing power grid. We're going to need to make massive investments in nuclear power. You know, like that's just that's just the future. That's what we're going to need to do. And we need to start having that conversation right now in order to make that transition in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. We're not even starting to have that conversation. It's 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 massively beyond the scope of yep. what we can even think about doing right now. Financially, psychologically, culturally, everything. Institutionally. Institutionally. Like no, like no oh great. We'll just we'll build a new shopping garage and we'll put an EV charging station in there. Won't that make us look trendy? Great. In 10 years, 60% of new cars sold are going to be EVs. What are you going to do that? How, well, how do, how's your condo? How's your condo in Toronto going to evolve to that? Going to manage that? How's your power grid going to do, going to deal with that? I crunched these numbers for TVO in a series of articles I wrote a couple of months ago. And it, it was around the time Russia was just first rolling into Ukraine. And we were kind of going, uh-oh. And we were looking around at all of our uh, energy sector so I use bulk numbers. Like I, I understand that my numbers were unnecessarily uh, bleak, but I basically said, like, I, I took a look at the um, number of uh, liters of gasoline, how many liters of gasoline for vehicles were sold in Ontario in 2019. I threw out 2020 because of all the pandemic weirdness. 
I looked at the federal um, uh, kilowatt hour to get to gasoline liter equivalent figures. And I just said, how many kilowatts of electricity to replace every liter of gasoline sold in Ontario? And the good news is we could do it. The bad news is we could not do anything else. Because in order to replace the amount of gasoline purely with battery power using, again, federal uh, efficiency standards, it would require production of the entire electrical grid. Or yeah, put another this is, way. This is, this is the equivalent of the ethanol stuff, the ethanol yeah. uh, additions to the, the, oh, we're going to add ethanol because that's a clean fuel source. Well, yeah, but in order to make substantive emissions reductions, I mean, real emissions reductions by replacing ethanol with or gasoline with ethanol, you couldn't produce food. So, yeah. you know. Now, this the is... reason I'm not like, and again, I, I acknowledged in my column for TV, in my series of columns for TBO that I was being needlessly pessimistic, right? Because first of all, you don't have to replace all the gasoline and you don't have no. to replace it all at once. No. And, and the one thing we could do is if we charge all these things overnight, yep. then we can actually get a, a long way there using idle grid capacity. So there yep. are things we can do. But just purely in terms of contextualizing the scale of the challenge and the and the scale of the cost and the energy, like political energy, I mean, we have to put into doing it. No, we're, we're not even close to this. So, yeah, are we having public policy successes in this country? Yes. If I needed a hip replacement today in Ontario, could I get one? No. Well, also, okay, okay so the policy successes you're, tout you're touting are reduction in tobacco use. So that's like, what, a 30-year-old policy success? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to unfairly criticize the like, book. Okay, I anyway, read, I the book. read the book. Read the book. Read the book, and we'll come back to this. But basically, I'm just like, we need to actually be seriously investing in nuclear infrastructure today. Where, where is that conversation happening? Here. Um, not many other here, places. Nowhere else. So anyway, that's Speaking that's the conversation. To, I mean, on this note, why don't you tell me about? I don't fully understand this yet, and I know that you okay. want to do more reading. So about this is this, this is yeah. This is this is something I need to do a little bit more research on before I I write about it. So I'm going to do that kind of later today. But essentially, this is something that that got flagged for me when I spoke and pissed off a lot of farmers at a farming conference. When that is plans to introduce emissions cap on fertilizer use, so it's not it's not a cap on fertilizer use. It's like a it's an emissions cap on ag essentially, and you've got farmers claiming that if this emissions cap goes through, it's going to essentially reduce um, uh, yields, food yields, by like some some ridiculous amount, like thirty percent. Um, and of course, we've seen across the world in India and, and Den I think Denmark as well, farmers just revolting over emissions cap on caps on agriculture because the emissions caps are so divorced from the realities of the outcomes that 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 a lot of these things are going to impose on people. And of course, it looks like we're we're going to be imposing these emissions caps in Canada, a major food producing and exporting part of the world, uh, in the midst of a global famine. So. Uh, <laughs> Like my the, the odds that an actual emissions cap that reduces food yields by that dramatic a, of, of an amount holds through in the next 90 to 190 days is seems radically implausible to me. Like like we, we we are looking at major food security issues, and I just don't see that as being a political winner. Like if you've got India, you know, moving bodies off the streets because they can't afford to feed people. You know, that's not going to look good on a Trudeau government that's just said we need to produce 30 percent less lentils like that. That is not a winning global proposition. And I don't think it's a winning local proposition for anybody. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage people to sort of slow their roles on the outrage on that one, because I think their political realities are, are pretty, pretty bleak on that. But I do think it's another example of just a government that appears to be increasingly 
entrenched in its own ideological bubble, passing policies that are just divorced from the world that we're actually living in. And you see this with C10, you see this with their online harms act, you see this, there's something about the, the liberal government that appears to be retreating into its own ideological headspace and not really paying attention to the actual impacts on, on, on ordinary people anymore. This is related to what we were talking about before. And mm -hmm. I think uh, before, before we were rolling the video, I talked a little bit about this, how within this yes minister esque customer service task force, world of, of governance you will have different working groups in this country that are simultaneously trying to increase and decrease our energy production mm -hmm. and it, they'll be so far removed from each other that they will not even realize <clears throat> that they're working at cross purposes uh, brian kelsey uh is a kind of municipal affairs guy political guy um, he's, he's written for us here at the line before he has a great saying, and I'm going to mangle it. So this is not a direct quote, but he says in, in his political career as a political advisor, he's always advised, uh, politicians or governments before you take action to try and fix a problem, make sure you're not already currently subsidizing it. And he, he actually, like, he, it's not just a wordplay. He says, most of the time when you find a bad thing that a government would want to fix, it is in some way actually sustaining it. And he says, like, you know, we could actually make a lot of our problems go away without having to like do stuff if we just stop doing bad stuff. We, and I don't look, I'm going to look forward to whatever you write about this. I don't understand the fertilizer thing. I'm aware of the Dutch protests and I know it's sort of animating some of the, the right wing convoy esque protests elsewhere mm -hmm. in North America. Like, I think the recent drive-through protest in uh, in Ottawa, like where they drove through Ottawa, I don't mean drive-through restaurants. I mean, like a convoy rolled through Ottawa. Didn't they make an explicit point of going past the Dutch embassy because of this fertilizer Ooh. thing? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, under I understand it's animating some of this now, but I'm actually looking forward to what you come up with because as of right now, I don't think I would understand. And it. also, I think I think there's also, um, and again, here's where I, I'm going to admit my ignorance and I need to do more research on this, but I think that the way that the um, the, the fertilizer thing is being portrayed in a lot of right-wing circles is incorrect. It's being portrayed oh, no as way. like a, yeah, like I, I think it's being portrayed as like, well, they're going to reduce food outputs by 30%. Like that's the policy. And the, the policy is actually an emissions reductions policy. It's not, it's not like, it's not meant to reduce yields essentially. So, um, you know, that feeds in, of course, into existing sort of uh, stereotypes about, you know, they want us all to be poor and eating bugs, you know, like it, it's all part of that conspiracy shit. So um, that's not the policy. It, it does seem to be a, a, an emissions reduction policy that is probably misguided and and and, and poorly timed. Okay. Um, but I, I, I'm going to do more research on that and figure it out exactly what the wording of the policy is. All right. Yeah. No, and I, I will. Like I said, I'll look forward to that because I actually don't know much about that. That's about all I have. So we've got Pope, we've got Task Force, we've got uh, Alberta, and we've got Fertilizer. So I think, oh, and we, we have one piece coming in on Ukraine. So I think that sounds like a pretty good dispatch, especially for yeah. a, a slow summer slow week. Slow summer week. Yeah, it's actually not been that slow, though. And also, of course, we got a column from me coming tomorrow on uh, uh, oh, Andrew Lawton, on Indigo yeah. and Andrew Lawton, which I think is actually pretty good. I think I'm pleased with it. So we are pleased with it. All right. Well, by the time anyone sees or hears this, that column will be live. Uh, we'll we'll put the podcast and the video out Friday. We'll put the written dispatch out, I think, Saturday, huh? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and on that note, I'm going to go eat some food and then do my edits. Well, can't argue with that plan. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jen. Take care, Cheers. everybody. You too.
Well, there you have it, our latest episode of The Lines Experimental Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please subscribe because we like making money. We'll be back with you soon. I think we're done major holidays for the summer with my home half dismantled. We might have a curveball or two to deal with. But other than that, I think we're back to a pretty normal routine, at least for the podcast. We'll be still publishing written articles at uh, about a half rate, we think. It's a quiet time, plus most of our freelancers are visiting their families. So there you go. In any case, you'll be hearing from us again next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you, as always, for being part of the line. We'll talk to you soon.